We're going to be reading in Proverbs chapter 12 this morning. Proverbs chapter 12, just verse 1 for the most part. Now, we're in the middle of discussing work, and two weeks ago we talked about the front end of work, and we talked about how whatever's going on in our hearts will eventually manifest itself out into our work, and that it is this distinction that we have in Christ that allows us to be distinguished in our work. And then last week, we discussed sort of the back end of work, which is, well, what do I do with the money that God has given me? And we talked about generosity and that phrase from Matthew Henry, God turns the giving hand into a getting hand. And now we are going to begin to discuss some of the nuts and bolts related to the performance of work. And uh, we're going to talk today mostly about our attitude toward learning and knowledge. In the past few decades, the term knowledge worker has risen to prominence, and this can also be, uh, knowledge worker can also be code, no offense, because most of you are, uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, overly sat elites. No, I'm kidding. Uh, no, uh, there's this uh, knowledge worker has kind of uh, become a loaded phrase. It, it typically means someone who uh, is probably doing well financially, but also someone who is, you know, really living up here. Uh, making most of their money through what's going on up here. And we have an opportunity to see in our text today a deeper kind of knowledge worker with a deeper kind of promise associated with it. Proverbs 12.1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Now, as plainly seen in the verse, the key to knowledge is having a proper attitude toward discipline and reproof. Now, let's make sure we know what these words mean. The word for discipline here in Hebrew just means a chastening or a correction. And this can include a rebuke given by someone else, but it also can mean things that come directly from the Lord via perhaps providential circumstances or from his word. And then the word for reproof is very similar, but it is more explicitly related to receiving correction by others. Now, I don't think I'm being alarmist in expressing some concern over the modern-day Christians' relatively low opinion of discipline and reproof. And if a low opinion and low appreciation for discipline and reproof are where they go where the Bible says they go, the concern would be that are we dumber than we know, you know, something like that. Um, You'll maybe tolerate an admittedly alarmist illustration, but years ago there was this ad campaign that was sort of an alarmist environmental dystopian angst campaign, and it just featured a little girl looking up to her mother and saying, Mommy, what is a forest? And, of course, that's loaded with this idea that in some future that exists, uh, there, there will be no more forests and that little girls will wonder what that word means. Well, let me give you another dystopian vision of the future that is not going to happen but feels more likely. Um, imagine a little girl in a dusty attic finding an old dusty book and she reads a word in that book she doesn't understand and she says, Mommy, what is a reproof? And the mother responds, oh, that's something Christians used to do to each other. And the little girl asks, like back when you were little, 
And the mother says, oh, no, honey, I'm not that old. The little girl says, okay, well, I have one more question. Mother's like, okay. She's like, what's a Christian? Like, if we don't recover our appreciation for discipline and reproof and recover its practice in Christian community, putting it in the place that God has intended for it to be, well, it's just not going to end well for us. It's not going to end well for us as individuals, as a people, or as a nation. And that's what this verse is letting us know. That if you love discipline, you love knowledge. But if you hate reproof, you are stupid. Now, one thing I want to be clear about on the front end, and that is, is that the main idea in these words is that they are painful. There's nothing about these words, when you look at them in the Hebrew and within the way that the Bible uses them, to ever suggest that these words are pleasant or that this experience is pleasant. There's no room in this text or in the Bible at all, really, for some kind of Goldilocks criticism of someone else's criticism. Like, your reproof was too hot or your reproof was too cold, and if it was just right, I might be able to digest it. The Bible's pretty clear. It's never fun to be disciplined or reproved. The Bible's way of thinking about these things is that it is painful. And so if we are on the receiving end or the giving end of reproof or discipline, we should not try to, uh, we should not try to fool ourselves into thinking that there's somehow to give a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. It's simply uh, expectation created out of our own humanist perspectives more than it is out of what the Word of God says. A verse in the New Testament we'll see in a moment reminds us no discipline seems pleasant at the time. So we can't twist this into something it is not. Discipline and reproof are painful, and there's a good reason why people are shy about receiving them or giving them. But it's, it's rough. Psalm 145, 141 verse 5 might summarize what discipline and reproof feel like. Uh, let a righteous man strike me. It is kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it, yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. So what we would not want to do is to, to come in behind these words and formulate them into something that is like, well, um, it's really like, yes, reproof and discipline are necessary, but let's make sure to sugarcoat this as much as possible to make it easy. I'm all for gentleness. I'm all for apt words, and the Bible is as well. But the truth is, is that the reason this verse exists is because it is easy to hate reproof, because reproof hurts. And if we strip that idea away from this, I don't really know what we have left. So why would anyone love discipline? The beginning of the verse says that the one who loves discipline loves knowledge. Well, I think the person loves discipline because it is a terrible thing to him to be in the wrong. And it is a delightful thing to him to be in the right. The person who loves discipline has a deep concern over what's really going on. He isn't satisfied with appearances. He wants to actually be in the right, and the only way to get into the right is to figure out 
where you're in the wrong. Um, one of the phrases that keeps coming up in the last few chapters is the word, or one of the words, is the word righteousness. Throughout the last several chapters, and we haven't addressed it yet, there has been an emphasis on the practicality of being righteous. Let me just read a few of those verses to you. Beginning in verse 10, uh, beginning in chapter 10, verse 2, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. 10, 6 through 7, blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. Uh, verse 11 in chapter 10, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. The mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Verse 16, the wage of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to sin. Verses 24 through 25, what the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. When the tempest passes, the, passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. And then in chapter 11, we see more of these promises pertaining to the value of righteousness. It's very practical, enduring, prospering, so on and so forth, even escaping. There's some verses about that. Verses 4 through 6 of chapter 11, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lusts. Verse 8, the righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. Verses 30 through 31 kind of summarizes this focus on righteousness. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. So there's a great deal of emphasis, not just on righteousness, but on how righteousness is extraordinarily practical and brings all kinds of blessings into our lives. And of course, the word righteous is rooted in the word is, no, right. Uh, the word righteous, where we get the word righteous, is this idea of being right. And this is what's going on in the heart of a man who loves discipline. It doesn't want to be wrong. He realizes he often can be, and he has an extreme desire to be right. He loves knowing what is actually true. The man or woman who loves discipline loves reality. That's, that's, the, that's the, the quintessential idea. The man or woman who loves discipline loves reality. The person who loves discipline, think about it this way, the person who loves real, discipline loves reality, while the person who hates discipline is content to keep up appearances. Another way of saying it, the person who loves discipline loves actually being right, while the person who hates discipline loves feeling or appearing right. The one who hates discipline works within an economy of appearances and illusions, he is what Jesus would call a whitewashed tomb. The one who loves discipline operates within an economy of truth because for him, facades and smoke machines are not enough. And he wants to know when he's in error so he can stand in the truth. Matthew Henry puts it this way. Those that have grace and love and and. 
those who have grace and love it will delight in all the instructions that are given them by way of counsel, admonition, or reproof by the word of, or by providence. They will value a good education. Where have we heard that phrase repeated over and over again for the last 40 years? They will value a good education. How would it feel for you if your child applied to a bunch of colleges and was, uh, was accepted into all of them and all of the very best ones? Some of you don't have to wonder how that feels. Some of you have raised extremely intelligent children. And the feeling is, of course, the hopeful feeling anyway is, is that now my child will receive a good education. And we have this sense built into us, thankfully, that we understand that the value of education is worth the expense and the effort and even the humiliation involved in doing hard things and failing. Matthew Henry says, they will value a good education and think it not a hardship, but a happiness to be under a strict and prudent discipline. Another way of thinking about this proverb is simply that the person who loves discipline loves God, while the person who hates discipline loves God as himself as God. You see, when we're talking about righteousness, when we're talking about the idea of this right, what we need to be clear on is, is that there is, in order for the word righteous to mean anything, it depends on the existence of some objective standard of right. Uh, if we surrender the meaning of righteousness to something other than an objective standard of right, we wind up in sort of moral tyrannies where we have these sort of moral tyrants who themselves are essentially what I would maybe argue is virtue signaling strongmen. And they become the moral arbiters for our society. And it turns out, you know, we all have this, this idea built into us that God's really rough and tough and harsh, but it turns out like, He's way nicer than, like, a lot of people on Twitter. God is way more forgiving. God is way more understanding. And he's way more informed about the true rightness of a thing. Sam Bankman-Fried, the FTX founder slash scoundrel, did an interview, I believe, with Rolling Stone. It might have been Vox very early on after all of the schemes were uncovered, and he, he essentially admits in the article that if you pay homage to various cultural shibboleths, which is essentially various cultural forms of righteousness on the left in particular, you can get away with anything. He's one of the largest donors to progressive causes in the whole world. And he admitted rather cynically in that article that that's because in signal virtuing in that direction, he could a sort of have blanket immunity to do what he wanted. So when we talk about righteousness, we really need to ask ourselves, well, what, where does that word have any value or meaning? And it only has value or meaning when we say that there is one who is right. And all things are compared to that one. And this is one of the, this is a terrible word for it, but one of the amazing innovations of the incarnation that I don't think anyone could have seen coming, and that is God's like, you know, I understand, I am, 
I'm transcendent and invisible, and I'm the standard of right. Let me make this easier for you. I'll just become a man. And so we have this standard of right that we are left really not wondering about. The standard of right is God, or as he tells Moses, I am, which I think is the shortened, abbreviated, philosophical version of I am the standard by which all things are determined to either be straight or crooked. And so the man who loves discipline loves being in harmony with the right, with the one true standard, with the thing by which all things are judged. And he thinks that whatever the pain associated is with discipline, that that is a small thing compared to the pain of being in disharmony with God. So how is it that someone can love what we have been careful to state is a very painful and difficult experience? It's because they want to be aligned with God. They want to be not just feeling right or appearing right, but actually want to be right. And the only way we as broken sinners get to that state is through correction. See, when we come to believe that the pain associated with short-term correction is nothing compared to the pain associated with long-term error, we will love discipline. When we come to prefer what feels at first to be cold, hard reality over warm and fuzzy illusions, we will love discipline. And we will agree, we won't, we won't ever become, uh, we won't ever love the feeling of it, but we'll agree with the writer of Hebrews 12.11, who says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And the word trained is, I think, a very hopeful word, friends. God has this marvelous way of showing us the standard when we are at our most bent. And we look at the straightness of God and our crookedness and we think this is never, ever going to happen. I am going to live for the rest of my life in this feeling of brokenness and bentness. And then, as Hebrews says elsewhere, we are trained by grace. We are trained by grace. Over time, just as you would bend a piece of wood to a form, the warmth of God's love and kindness combined with his surety and unchanging nature, his holiness, his not, his, he will not yield. Over time, God's holiness and his warm love work together to conform us into his image. And it really doesn't usually feel very good. But as the writer of Hebrews says, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now we go back to our text in Proverbs 12.1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who rep hates reproof is stupid. 
the way these proverbs are built, and I mentioned this slightly last week, is that there's a promise on both sides. You can go this way, you can go that way. Here's what's going to happen if you go this way. Here's what's going to happen if you go that way. But they're also built in a certain way so as to entice our, our best desires. And so it would be appropriate to read this at some stage. So you could read this proverb multiple times throughout the year and different pieces and different enticements and warnings would stand out to you at various times. And it'd be appropriate upon one reading of this to say simply this, well, I don't want to be stupid. That's a good thing to not want to be stupid. It's a good thing to look at that verse and one of the conclusions you make is, you know, I don't really want to be stupid. The word stupid is a word that is used to describe a dumb animal. That's, that's the Hebrew word, a dumb animal. Matthew Henry writes, those show themselves not only devoid of grace, but void of common sense, that take it as an affront to be told of their faults, and an imposition upon their liberty to be put in mind of their duty. He that hates reproof is not only foolish, but brutish, like the horse and the mule that have no understanding, or the ox that kicks against the goad. Those that desire to live in loose families and societies where they be, may be under no check, that stifle the convictions of their own consciences, and count their, those their enemies that tell them the truth. These are the brutish here meant. There's a very ancient idea that imagines sort of two paths every human chooses. And in this kind of ancient idea that transcends culture, it's, it's kind of everywhere, it's sort of like, will I become more like God or more like an animal? And so this is kind of a common way of sorting out choices. This path leads to me being more like God and this path leads me to being more like an animal. And that's kind of what's happening in this verse. This verse is communicating that there's a choice. Your attitude toward correction and discipline is a sort of fork in the road. And if you respond in a good way, you will become more and more righteous, more and more godly, more and more like God. By the way, righteous and godly, very synonymic kind of things. And then the other path is if I respond poorly to discipline, if I respond poorly to correction, if I hate reproof, I will become progressively more and more brutish or stupid or stubborn. Now, that's sort of like put forward in various myths and also various true stories. And one of those stories is in the book of Daniel in chapter 4 where a man named Nebuchadnezzar, who is the closest thing to God on earth, he is fundamentally maybe one of the most powerful men to have ever lived even to this day. And he has this young man in his court, a Hebrew named Daniel, who is a stubborn truth teller, a fearless truth teller, I heard this week a pastor say that when Daniel was in the lion's den, it wasn't the lion's den anymore, it was Daniel's. And the lions were asking, what are we doing locked in here with him? The most fundamentally powerful man 
in the known world at the time and one of, you know, top five maybe of all time. And Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. And here's how Nebuchadnezzar responds in verse 30. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He hated correction. He hated reproof. And the very next verse, listen to this. This is such good storytelling. God is such a good storyteller. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. And so this is a very graphic picture of this ancient fork in the road between those who receive discipline and reproof, even though it hurts, and they become more like God. They become more righteous. And the other fork in the road, the one who hates reproof, he becomes more and more here almost literally like a beast the idea being, we would say, what does it mean when we say someone has lost themselves? They've, in some fundamental way, surrendered the image of God by neglecting and rejecting the word of God. And they wander about, incapable of receiving correction in the futility of their minds. Well, this story has kind of a happy ending, and that is rare for these kinds of people. In verse 34, the king himself writes, he would have had to trim his nails first. Can you imagine waking up from what would feel like insanity, of course? Waking up from that. And coming to yourself again, as it says with the prodigal son. And this is what he writes. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. He is becoming unstupefied. My reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants, inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And now Nebuchadnezzar is aligned with reality. He is in touch with the way things actually are. And even if he had departed from that field and gone to live in a modest home with just one wife, he would have been more prosperous in that state than he was in the delusion of his pride at the beginning of the text. Now, as I mentioned, it is very rare to be redeemed from pride. The majority of people who embrace pride, who walk up to pride and give it a hug, will find that pride refuses to let them go. This is a beautiful picture of an improbable redemption. It is not all that common to see someone go that far down and be redeemed out of their stupidity and have their reason returned to them. So how about you? Let's go back to the text, Proverbs 12.1. Where are you in Proverbs 12.1? Do you love discipline and therefore love knowledge, or do you hate reproof and are in great danger of becoming stupid? I think it's really a great opportunity to ask a very important question, and that is, so how does the gospel of Jesus Christ interact with this whole concept? And I want to present three kind of ideas to you that wrap up all of this, I believe, in a hopeful way. Well, the first way that the gospel interacts with these principles is that the gospel is God's rebuke to us. The gospel is God's rebuke to us. Through the gospel, God is telling mankind that we are caught, stuck, and unable to recover ourselves from profound and offensive error. You know, the cross itself, if you just take a few minutes to imagine it, is gruesome and horrific and deeply unjust. And if you really take a moment to think about the cross, you see that all throughout that blood and hatred and shame, you see God's rebuke to mankind. This is who you are. You are so stuck, so broken, that you have one hope, that I myself would pay the penalty you could never pay. And so the gospel actually begins with a rebuke. You know, God has 
God is doing many things in salvation, but usually for us on our side, in the, on the experience side, the first thing a person who is being saved is aware of is something like, I'm not okay. Something's wrong with me. I'm not right. I'm not righteous. And so God is, of course, declaring and demonstrating his love to us through the cross, but he's also declaring and demonstrating that we are fundamentally broken and will not ever recover from this state on our own. The second thing to think about related to the gospel is, is that the gospel makes God's discipline available to us. The gospel makes God's discipline available to us. The gospel actually makes correction possible. So here's a really important question if you're a parent. It's a really important question if you're a Christian. What exactly is the difference between punishment and discipline? What is the difference between punishment and discipline? Very important for parents to know this. Very important for Christians to know this. Well, here's a couple ways to think about that distinction. Punishment has no desire for a relationship. Punishment is actually just a cutting off. It's essentially a severing. Discipline corrects, and it has the goal of atonement. And I want to use the very old kind of Shakespearean meaning of the word atonement for a minute. And maybe this will encourage you. You know, that many people don't realize that the way that that word was used a long time ago was as a compound word that really means at one ment one ment meaning unity or togetherness. at one ment Atonement means bringing the person back in. Atonement means restoration, the idea of being unified and restored. And so punishment is, is simply get out of here. It's a severing. It's a cutting off. Discipline is exactly the opposite of that. Discipline isn't a punishing. It's a correcting so that fellowship can be restored, so that we can experience at-one-ment with the God who made us. Another way to think about this is that the aim of punishment is justice, and the aim of discipline is joy. The aim of punishment is justice, and the aim of discipline is joy. Now, the gospel makes it possible for us to experience discipline instead of punishment because Christ bore our punishment. He was cut off. And he did that so that we could be disciplined. Another way of talking about this is that by receiving our punishment, justice was accomplished. Remember how I said a moment ago that punishment has to do with justice and discipline has to do with joy. By, by suffering for us in our stead, Jesus experiences the punishment element of our sin so that justice has been accomplished. And that brings us to another word, the word justified. I stand with God 
as someone who cannot be punished for my sin because God has put my punishment on Jesus. But I can certainly be disciplined because God wants a relationship with me. He wants to restore my brokenness and my bentedness and get me in line with him again. And so the gospel actually makes it possible for me to engage in God's gracious work of discipline because I no longer fear the punishment. Douglas Wilson wrote a wonderful biography. This is not something he would be known for typically, but he wrote a wonderful biography many years ago on John Knox, the great Scottish reformer, and the book is called The Stalwart Courage of John Knox. And he writes this, and I just want you to hear this. This illustrates a lot of what I'm getting at in this punishment-discipline dynamic. He writes, John Knox had no delusions about himself in the light of God's perfection. He knew that the infinite clarity of God's gaze could see completely what he himself knew only partially. During the reign of Edward, Knox recalled that he had, in truth, preached the true gospel. But alas, he writes, I did not with such fervency with such indifferency and such diligence as this day I know my duty was to have done. Essentially saying, I did preach the gospel. Now, this is a man who risked his life routinely in preaching the gospel, but he's able to go back and say, I was not as diligent. I was not as brave and fervent as I should have been. Wilson writes, he is confessing here a sin of omission. He could have done more. During the reign of Edward, the time proving to be so short, he should have done more. But alas, this day, this is Knox writing, but alas, this day my conscience accuses me that I spoke not so plainly as my duty was to have done. Wilson again. It is the same kind of confession here. He spoke plainly, but not so plainly as he should have. And then Wilson wraps up. Many moderns do not understand how the early Protestants could feel such a great sense of religious relief and at the same time be pretty severe with themselves. The answer lay in the doctrine of justification. They knew God received them based upon the merit and virtue of Christ's perfect righteousness only. C.S. Lewis says, we want, above all, to know what it felt like to be an early Protestant. All the initiative has been on God's side. All has been free, unbounded grace. And all will continue to be free, unbounded grace. His own puny and ridiculous efforts would be as helpless to retain the joy as they would have been to achieve it in the first place. So we've got this dynamic Wilson's working on. We've got someone like Knox who is better than all of us. Like we could probably add ourselves up and not equal him. He's an amazing, faithful man. And he's able to look back at his past in all honesty and say, and he, he's able to go into a box very few of us dare to go. And that box is the sins of omission. We don't like playing around in that sandbox. We don't like digging up those memories. He's able to go into this space of wondering, not simply, did I do wrong things, but what should I have done better? It's a very scary place to go. And he's able to be honest with himself, indeed even hard on himself. 
And the question is, why? Why could he be that way while simultaneously being a notably joy-filled and happy man? And Wilson brings us back to something C.S. Lewis wrote in his magnum opus that almost no one has read, which is uh, English literature in the 16th century. That's, that's probably Lewis's magnum opus. It's a very difficult read. And Lewis is reviewing Protestant literature, and he's, he's, he's discovering over and over again this sense of levity and joy and peace, while also a capacity to be severe with themselves. And we don't even believe that exists. We think those are dichotomies. They're not in Christ. They're not in Christ. That is because, as Lewis says, Christ's virtue has secured for us peace with God and eliminated any capacity being cut off or punished. Knox writes, I openly confess the fruit and virtue of Christ's body of his blood and passion to appertain to myself that I am a member of his mystical body and that God the Father is appeased with me notwithstanding my first corruption and present infirmities. And then Wilson, just three more sentences. Knox knew that the Father was not angry with him for Christ's sake. And he knew his present corruption. That corruption was a grief to him, but not a threat to him. So the gospel is taking punishment off the table and making a love for discipline possible. And the third thing the gospel does in this way of thinking, the gospel is actually God's reproach to us. The gospel is essentially makes God's discipline possible to us. And the third thing, the gospel makes discipline desirable to us. The gospel makes discipline desirable to us. The gospel goes even farther than sparing us from the punishment of God and bringing us into his fatherhood and therefore his discipline. The gospel actually transforms us and in transforming us makes us people who love reality and love to be found in the truth and are willing to pay the admittance to get there. And the admittance to get there is always the same thing. Repentance. Recognizing where we have been wrong. And moving joyfully into the right because, well, how lucky am I that I even get a chance to get into this place? Our attitude toward discipline, if you think about it, has a lot to show us about what we actually believe about the gospel. Matthew Henry writes, we are here taught, this is his opening line in his commentary on 12.1. By the way, easily second best commentary on Proverbs that exists, and it's probably the cheapest commentary you can buy if you want that. Matthew Henry's whole Bible commentary, best stuff on Proverbs just about. How does our attitude toward discipline reveal our understanding and appreciation for the gospel? Henry writes, We are here taught to try whether we have grace or not by inquiring as to how we respond to the means of grace. And discipline and reproof are means of grace. 
We are here taught to decide whether we have grace or not by seeing how we respond when the means of grace, discipline and reproof, are brought to us. And through this transformation, God has, over time, redeemed many Nebuchadnezzars. Many of us, in fact, Ephesians 2 would say that we were all sons of disobedience and caught up and enslaved to our passions. We're beasts. And he breaks down the pride through the cross, and he turns us into people not only who could be disciplined, but who could even learn to love it. And we join David, who in Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Without Knox's understanding of justification, that's a hard prayer to pray and mean. Well, this is a series on work. How does all of this affect work? Two things, quickly. We are just establishing over and over again that it is the state of our hearts that eventually manifests out into the real world through our work. And here we're really talking about an attitude we have toward discipline and correction. And so I'll just summarize how this affects our work in a simple way. We live in a world right now where life-giving, prosperity-bringing information and instruction is constantly pushed against and frustrated by pride, defensiveness, and insecurity. We have a world full of people who cannot be criticized in any meaningful way, cannot be corrected in any meaningful way because they have fragile, rootless egos. And so no matter how much information we have access to today, no matter how many willing instructors there are in the world, no matter how capable those instructors are, whether it be in education or in workspace, the problem now is simply people can't humble themselves enough to learn. And in contrast, the Christian must be different. And that difference must be obvious because the Christian at work must be humble and hungry for knowledge, eager to learn, and more than willing to pay the price for it by being told when he or she is in the wrong. And in this way, the Christian becomes the true knowledge worker because the Christian is eager for true knowledge. Now, I want to pray for us in this regard. I just can't imagine anyone who's not Nebuchadnezzar-level crazy in this room thinking, well, this sounds like I have got it made. I'm doing great in this department. I want to pray. One of the things that's so difficult that we... We can say these words, but the Holy Spirit must get out that spiritual snowplow and move away all this pride in our hearts. And so communion is simple today. We celebrate the gospel that brings us into this state of being willing to be disciplined, of being able to be disciplined. We also are reminding, like, you know, this original rebuke that God gave me through the gospel has turned out pretty well. I should have hope for this. But let me, before we do that, just pray for you. 
<clears throat> Father God, it is, it is one thing to recognize pride and irritability, irritability and defensiveness. And it is another thing, Lord, to really know how to respond to something that just it creeps in and takes over. Lord, we appeal to you as the great heart surgeon that through the moving of your spirit and the work of your word, you would divide and conquer and separate us from our pride. That belongs to the old man who is crucified with Christ as we saw in Colossians 3. And this new man, this new humble man or woman, well, strengthen him, Lord. Strengthen our spirits. Help us, Lord, to pursue the humility described in this verse. And God, now we shift over to participating in your table and pray that even as we partake, in what symbolizes a beaten body and poured out blood for our sake, that even as we partake of this, you, God, would even in a miraculous way soften our hearts. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Paul writes to the Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.